Hello and welcome back to Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and I'm joined as always by Damien Heath. Hello. And Cameron Crothers. Hey. This month we are taking care of business as we look back at Martin Scorsese's 1990 masterpiece, Goodfellas. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. I couldn't stand him. I thought he was really obnoxious. I gotta admit the truth, it turned me on. We have a great show lined up this month. As always, we're going to begin with key inspirations for the film, discuss its thematic content and release. We're then going to play Damien's interview with our special guest, Dr. Mark Nichols, film professor at the University of Melbourne, who's written at length about Scorsese and who gave us a great interview, didn't he? He did. Yes, very interesting. We'll then move on to the film's release and reception, followed by our monthly quiz where Damien will try to reclaim his throne as quiz champion after Cameron's baffling win last month. In 1986, New York crime reporter turned author Nicholas Pileggi received a call out of the blue from Hollywood filmmaker Martin Scorsese, who'd just finished reading his best-selling novel Wise Guys. Scorsese said to him, I've been waiting for this book my entire life. Pileggi's novel traced the rise and fall of Henry Hill, a New York City mobster associated with the Lucchesi family, who turned FBI informant in 1980, ratted on all of his friends, and entered the witness protection program. Pileggi and Scorsese collaborated on the screenplay while Scorsese worked on The Last Temptation of Christ, running it through a dozen drafts. Scorsese was inspired by French New Wave movies like Truffaut's Jules and Jim, which begins with a frenetic editing style and voiceover that ties a flurry of discordant images together. Scorsese wanted Robert De Niro for the role of Hill, but he refused due to other commitments and instead offered to play the supporting role of mobster Jimmy Conway. With De Niro on board, Scorsese secured the $25 million budget required from Warner Brothers, and principal photography got underway in the spring of 1989. Scorsese was careful to cast actors who'd grown up in working-class New York City and New Jersey and encouraged them to play with the dialogue. Actors would rehearse scenes and ad-lib, which Scorsese would record, interweaving his favourite pieces of dialogue into the script. The film shot for 72 days in Queens, New York, with some scenes shot in Long Island. Initial test screenings were disastrous, with more than 40 walkouts. Audiences were put off by the film's unflinching violence and hyperkinetic editing style. With great trepidation, Warner Brothers released the film in September of 1990, where it was met with instantaneous and universal acclaim. It went on to be nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, and Joe Pesci took home the Best Supporting Actor award for his turn as Tommy DeVito. These days, Goodfellas is still widely considered to be one of the greatest films ever made, inspiring countless retreads, most notably David Chase's TV series The Sopranos. In 2000, it was selected by the National Film Registry for Preservation. So if you're one of those suckers who work shitty jobs for bum paychecks and take the subway to work every day, pull back a chair and join us for this Goodfellas retrospective. Well, the New Yorker called it hallucinatory realism which I think is about right. And a lot of it does feel like a hallucination because you start with nothing, you get everything, and then in the end, you lose it all. The frenetic pace of the movie, the use of music, the long takes that Scorsese employs on many of his films and in this one support this hallucination. And it's kind of like a whirlwind or a roller coaster ride 
especially the first hour of this movie. And I think also the fact that Goodfellas looks at the low-level guys and it's not looking at a mob boss, who's, that's pretty difficult to put yourself in that place if you're looking at a mob boss. For instance, the head of the Corleone family, like in The Godfather. But you can definitely associate with a young guy who's in school or just out of school and who just wants more money and more access to whatever he wants, more freedom from his father, more control over his own life. So instantly at the start of this movie, we're in with a guy who's just like us. And Henry throughout the whole movie is a guy who's almost just like us. So he's easy to empathise with. And the style that Scorsese uses, it takes this authenticity of what he's, uh, what he's showing, of what we as a viewer want, and then says, hey, you don't actually want this. He's served up something that looks really nice and it's very palatable. And then in the end, he takes it away and our own emotional reaction to him taking it away from Hen Henry Hill, it's almost like he's taking it away from us. And so that adds to the realism of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. You do feel the emptiness by the end of the film. You do. I think that it also can't be separated from Stal um, Scorsese's own Italian working class background. I think you feel that all through the film. Yeah. The obviously. vernacular of it, the language, the way that the characters interact with one another, it feels like it's all been taken from observation. It's all like in the details, you know, like the focus and overemphasis and that Italian preoccupation with food, that kind of thing, it makes it feel so much more authentic, so much more real. And basically just because the world is so like expertly realized, the way you move through it, it always becomes kind of secondary. Um, it doesn't feel like style ever overshadows the content because the content is so well realized. I think it's interesting as well that Joe Pesci said to uh, Scorsese said to him, behave like them, don't act like them. Yeah. And I think that, that when I heard that, it felt very true to what I was seeing. And what you just mentioned about food, Robert De Niro's obsession with getting the little details about Jimmy Wright. Mm. How did he how did he get the sauce out of the bottle? And he yeah, called yeah, up yeah. Nicholas No, he called up Henry Hill oh, yeah. and asked. <laughs> well, there's that whole scene, the final day that Henry Hill is free and he's talking his this voiceover's been about such great, grand, big things that he's doing in the mafia and then he's talking about how he uses the peppers in his sauce that he's going to be cooking. Yeah. Yeah, so that the garlic. Realism. Yeah, well, um, also um, the scene, which I'm sure we'll come back to with, uh, where they stop off after Billy Batts' murder and get the knife. Yeah. And that whole scene around the dinner table there is just an Italian family, essentially, a, a mother, a son, and his two friends. And was improvised. Was, like, largely improvised, that whole scene. And so that naturalism is constantly coming through. And I think that's part of what makes the film so fascinating, especially even though we are, we identify with Henry Hill and we know him, but we don't know that well, particularly being like three, you know, guys from Adelaide, Australia, 30 years later, there is such a divide between the world he's growing up in, the vernacular, the communication, the sense of family, all of that sort of stuff is slightly nuanced towards this Italian working class New York City background that we have no reference frame for. And it's what he chooses to focus on as well. Like the fact that he spends so much time on, on things like food is so different for that type of film. Like not every moment in this film is life and death. Mm. And God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. There is this kind of rule that you don't use voiceover in movies because it is exposition, but when it's used correctly, like it is in Goodfellas, it adds and aids the movie so well mm. that it becomes a one of those things where breaking the rule works better. I remember, actually, we had a slight disagreement, um, Luke, about 
American Hustle. Um, and we're talking about it and you were like, I just didn't get it. It just felt like he was trying to be Scorsese with the voiceover that was oh, used right. constantly in that film. It's funny how much that sort of gets uh, attributed to him. Like, like voice, yeah. he almost owns it because it's just, it is the best use of voiceover that I can think of in a film. We always called each other good fellas. Like you'd say to somebody, you're going to like this guy. He's all right. He's a good fella. He's one of us. You understand? We're joined this month by Dr. Mark Nichols, Senior Lecturer in Cinema Studies at the University of Melbourne, where he's been teaching film studies for over 20 years. Mark is the prolific author of several books on film theory, including Scorsese's Men, Melancholia and the Mob, published in 2004, and Lost Objects of Desire, the performances of Jeremy Irons in 2012. Mark is a film journalist who has appeared on ABC Radio and has written articles for The Age. If that weren't enough, Dr. Nichols is also a playwright, producer, and director. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us, Mark. It's a pleasure. When did you first fall in love with cinema? Probably very early on. I, I remember, um, well, you know, as a child, really sitting with my mother and watching Willie Wilder's La- Wuthering Heights with Laurence Olivier in it. And I think, you know, that was pretty much it for me. And what drew you originally to write about Martin Scorsese? It was in a way a kind of a circuitous route. I was working on questions of film style and representations of uh, the family in in cinema. And and Scorsese was one of my sort of preferred case studies. But I'd have to say the real clincher came in 1993, which was just after I sort of started my doctoral thesis and he released The Age of Innocence, and, and from then on, it was really quite obvious what my kind of central focus was going to be at that point in my life and, and subsequently. And you're talking specifically there about uh, what you've termed the cinema of melancholia. Um, can you outline the principal argument for our listeners and how you developed that? Obviously, uh, your idea of that, the genesis of that, came from The Age of Innocence. Well, certainly it helped me understand Scorsese's filmmaking that had preceded that. And it was interesting that a lot of criticism prior to my own work had sort of mentioned this concept of melancholia as being predominant in Scorsese's films. But apart from a few scholars like Pam Cook, uh, not many people had done much more to say what that meant and it particularly interested me in a kind of gendered sense. So um, for me, the, the concept of melancholia was very much engaged with sort of description of a male sensibility that certainly I see as predominant not only in Scorsese but in a whole bunch of other films and, 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 and film schools and styles that have obviously influenced him as well. Yeah, and obviously uh, Scorsese uh, works with male leads a lot and has throughout his career, and there's been some kind of charges against him that he doesn't pay a lot of attention to feminine perspectives, that he is too male-centric. I don't agree with that. He talks about what interests him and the perspective that he shares, I suppose, a great deal. Uh, and that's very different to sort of, you know, he's, he's, he's it's not as if he's ignoring femininity or women. I've just recently done some work and and will be doing more work on the topic of Scorsese's women. I think the extent to which he has been seen as perhaps disinterested in femininity is, 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 is grossly overrated. And I think it's probably more of a critical and spectatorial position than anything. I mean... <laughs> 
anything that he has sort of pursued definitely. I mean, in a way, it was kind of interesting when, when you saw a film like The Gangs of New York and, and the invented character in that film uh, that was played by Cameron Diaz. And, you know, people criticised the idea of having a, an invented female character. Well, in a sense, you know, critics can't have it both ways. Yeah. I don't think that's the greatest example of Scorsesean feminine interrogation. In fact, it's not. But in a sense, women, uh, particularly women filmmakers, have been fundamental to Scorsese. And I think if you look at films like Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore, I think if you look at films like The Age of Innocence, certainly I think if you look at the character of Karen in Goodfellas, our film that we're mm. talking about today, I think we, we can't say that this guy's not interested in women. No, absolutely. And he's, uh, I mean, I guess he's got a, a look at very, a lot of masculine things in a lot of his movies and early on and through the 80s, but he's still got those uh, female characters. I mean, there's two major female characters in the film dating like uh, Taxi Driver as well, one of his biggest films. So, yeah, look, I, I agree with you there personally. One thing that I think is fundamental to Scorsese's representation of masculinity is that, without getting too Jungian on you, there is a very strong interrogation of a notion of uh, femininity within that masculinity. And going back to Goodfellas, when did you first see Goodfellas and what were your initial impressions? It's one of the films of Scorsese's that I think I can definitely say I saw the week it was released in 1990, or at least in Melbourne. I, it, it was amazing because I saw it in the cinema and it was a Friday night, I remember it very clearly, and people came out of the cinema quite shocked. And I remember standing on the, on the, on the street outside the, the, the movie house and a car backfired and everyone kind of fell to the ground. <laughs> it, it was an amazing sort of congruence of, of, of forces. But, look, I think in a way, to me, I hate to say this because people always ask me this question and I, I find it difficult to answer, but to me it's almost his best and most kind of perfect film. I think stylistically it's impeccable. Mm-hmm may not be the film I throw in every time I feel like watching one of Scorsese's films, but it's pretty close to it. But but I think in a way, if I were to, to say that he has made a kind of pure or perfect film, I think Goodfellas is probably it. I mean, m- my personal favourite, as I've said, is The Age of Innocence. Uh, perhaps it's a little close to my own sensibility and experiences. But uh, Goodfellas, uh, you know, it's it's pretty near perfect. We can all commiserate with you there because if we'd walked out of the cinema ourselves and had a car backfire after seeing Goodfellas, I think most of us would have soiled ourselves. <laughs> I didn't quite go that far. I was in a polite neighbourhood after all. But uh, it, 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 we were sort of ripe for the picking, I have to say. Yeah. What do you think it is about the Henry Hill Henry Hill mold uh, men whose dreams ultimately go unrequited that make them such fascinating screen personas? I wonder whether I would use the word fascinating. I think I would say compelling, if I can just be a bit semantic. To me, the fascinating characters in Scorsese's films are usually not the protagonists, I would yeah. argue. Or not frequently. But I think Henry Hill kind of represents you and me and a bunch of other blokes and perhaps some women who watch this film and lob themselves into an environment temporarily three, for three hours or so and get a chance to wander around in that environment. Uh, if you look at Henry Hill as he's portrayed in the film, he's a lot less engaged with acts of violence than any of the other characters. And unlike the character upon which he is based, we never really see him do anything that we might call rough stuff. 
uh, in, with two exceptions. Uh, in fact, with one exception, when he, um, I think, pistol whip is the phrase to be used when he pistol whips Karen's next door neighbour. Yeah, and uh, Luke and I were actually having this discussion the other day that that scene at the start, which comes back during the middle of the movie, the murder of uh, Billy Bats in the car boot, he almost looks shocked even at that point. Well, that's the, the, the beginning of, of, of irony in the film. I mean, one of the most, you know, almost sort of, you know, are you talking to me kind of moments in Scorsese other than from Taxi Driver is that moment when, when the freeze frame falls on, on Henry Hill when he shut the door up to Billy Batts' um, being shot and he says, you know, all my life I just wanted to be a gangster. I mean, that to me is not the look of a guy who's comfortable in no. that context. Yeah, not at all. In your book, you go into detail about how Scorsese's use of use of technique in Goodfellas is employed to isolate Henry Hill from the uh, corrupt conservative group to which he belongs. And in particular, you mention Henry's walk through the courthouse where he directly addresses the camera and turns his back on his comrades who are seated in the courthouse. Uh, obviously, that ties into what we're talking about here. Well, I suppose in that context, I mean, that's one example and perhaps the most sort of patent example where we see and feel that he, he actually doesn't belong in that world. The last image we see of Henry Hill in a sort of terry-toweling baby blue robe with his hair not greased up, standing in the middle of some horrendous Levittown-esque suburban estate isolated from the city and from what he calls the action. These are a number of locational and also narrational means by which he is... Well, Scorsese seems to think, well, does this guy really belong here in this world? And that's why I think we don't see him do any real gangster stuff. I mean, that amazing moment when he's in the diner with De Niro at the end of the film and De Niro's trying to suss him out as to whether he's going to rat on, on, on them all and, and he says he asked me to go down and, quote, take care of Anthony, end quote. Now, he says, oh, he's never asked me to take care of anyone before. Now, if you're in that world, as the real Henry Hill was, taking care of someone is an important part of business. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he's not asked to do that makes me think that, well, you know, does he really belong in that world? How do you think that Scorsese's Italian background shapes his sensibilities as a filmmaker, particularly tying that into a film like Goodfellas? As an Italian-American, he knows those communities. He knows those people. In the age of Trump <laughs> and Dutton and Turnbull and... Shorten, I'm reluctant to sort of talk about ethnicity and ethnic origin and crime. I don't think Scorsese's part of a criminal context or that he grew up in part of a criminal context as we would necessarily believe it, but he, he was around that kind of action and he would have seen things. In fact, he did see things mm. that appalled him and I think frightened him in a way. There certainly was a sensibility that I think he inherits from his family, which is about sort of how you deal with those worlds. It's not criminal. It's about getting through life with a sense of moral purpose, but having to negotiate some pretty, at least in a first world context, pretty difficult stuff. If you look at his documentary on Italian cinema, I'm pretty sure he highlights something that the great director Vittorio De Sica says about neorealism when he's talking about bicycle thieves and bitter rice and paisa. De Sica said that neorealism and neorealist filmmaking in Italy after the war wasn't so much about 
some sort of theoretical purity of filmmaking. It was actually, and the quote is something like, a prayer for solidarity. And to me, there's a lot more of that humanist impulse in Scorsese than perhaps we think about and talk about a lot. And I think that is, in a way, something he derives very strongly from his Italian and his Sicilian background. And it's interesting that you bring up uh, De Sica, and obviously Scorsese is a historian of movies, first and foremost, and a lover of movies, and he takes so many things from all of these movies that he saw in his youth. And, uh, I mean, not to move too far off of this, but one of my follow-up questions is about uh, Powell and Pressburger, uh, and their production company, The Archers, and the films they were responsible for, The Red Shoes and Black Narcissus. And he himself, Scorsese, has obviously had a... Um, they've had a huge influence on him, uh, specifically citing Black Narcissus and The Tales of Hoffman. I understand you're currently writing something about that partnership. Is that correct? Yeah, I am. And, and in a way, it's sort of almost... In one sense, it's like writing the next book about Scorsese after my first book, or my only book. And I would say that possibly he gets more from Powell and Pressburger than he gets from Rossellini or Visconti. You know, I mean, I think what Powell and Pressburger and Michael Powell articulates this most clearly in his voluminous writings on his own career is the idea of the so-called composed film. There's all sorts of ideas about what that is, but really for Powell, um, one of the most simple readings of the composed film, if you take a film like Black Narcissus and certainly a film like The Red Shoes and most definitely The Tales of Hoffman, is the relationship of all component parts of the film to each other, most particularly the relationship of music to action and mise-en-scene. Which is obviously very important to Scorsese. Yeah, well, to me, Goodfellas just screams it. I mean, you think of all those great moments, and I challenge you and your uh, potties to think about you know, the, the moments you re reflect on after you've seen the film and, and years later, I, I reckon they always start with a musical cue. Do you have a favourite musical cue from Goodfellas? I've got two, actually. It's hard to have one. It is. I've got two that stand out and jump right out at me at the moment. One is when De Niro is thinking about how he's going to whack out the crew that pinched all that money. I think it's Sunshine of My Life or Sunshine of Your Life. The song. The other one is when we see all those, what he's done to all those characters, how he's killed them, which is, of course, Eric Clapton's piano refrain for Layla. I'll always think of those, those two scenes because of the relationship between music and image. And I think the music, I come from a musical background, so it's very important to me, but I think it's important to virtually everyone. But the idea of power of those scenes to me is, is fundamentally driven by the, the scores he uses. And he, he does that all throughout his filmmaking. I mean, he, he's, and I've written about this in relation to Mean Streets. I mean, the first three minutes of Mean Streets are, in a sense, the perfect Powell and Pressburger-esque composed film with mm -hmm. his use of Be My Baby over the title sequence. The track onto the pink car, the two dead bodies in the car, and that piano music over the top, that's my favourite yeah, that's Layla. I mean, it's, 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 um, yeah. I probably knew the song quite well before I saw the film, but, you know, to me, that's always going to be mm. what Layla really is. Yeah. And whenever I, I hear Clapton's recordings of it, I wait for that moment. Yeah. And I think about those, and I don't, I'm not saying, I don't care so much about the images, but the, the combination 
is is fundamental, and, and that's that's what Pal and Pressburg do, and particularly they're starting to experiment with that a lot around the time of Black Narcissus, and by the time of Tales of Hoffman. I mean, it's it's completely. Now, I mean, they didn't they didn't invent the idea. I mean, it's melodrama. It's what melodrama really is. Not melodrama is not some nonsense about soapies soap and whatever. Melodrama is the relationship between dramatic action and and music, which has always been fundamental to all forms of performance, but perhaps became a little bit disjointed once um, the cinema fully discovered the uses of sound in the late 20s. Is this a, uh, the work on Powell and Pressburger, is that a book that you're working on? It was originally part of a project to look at the relationship between not so much ballet and cinema, but you could call it dance or, or, or movement-based performance and, and its impact on cinema. I mean, I'm actually writing a book about uh, Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. But out of that work is coming a lot of work on Powell and Pressburger. So it's certainly going to be, a, and, and he's already a, a series of articles that's coming out. I think I need to say something first about the Ballet Russe in Paris, in, you know, just before the First World War, to uh, explain what I really mean about Powell and Pressburger. Michael Powell's talked a lot about this relationship. Uh, if you look at the character of Lermontov in The Red Shoes, uh, he's very, very much um, influenced by a character like Sergei Pavlovich Diaghilev, who is the founding and driving force of the Ballet Russe in, you know, after 1909. The musical cues in Scorsese's work, he continues to use them today uh, in the films that he makes. Um, do you think that the work that Scorsese is doing today compares and ha- or how does it compare with the, the films that he's renowned for, the films from the 70s and the 80s? One thing that's important that we remember about Scorsese is that as a filmmaker, he, in a sense, went through quite a revolution around the time of Gangs of New York. I think it's Gangs of New York is the point when he stops making films in the low millions and jumps over the $100 million mark. Mm. So he's making very different kinds of films because there's more money involved. A lot of people, particularly people my age and older, tend to be a bit dismissive of the latter work. It's the classic Woody Allen thing, you know, we like your early, not funny ones, but your early films. So in a sense, I think it's, it's, it's unfair to compare the two. I think his work is still... Uh, incredibly interesting and in some ways even more personal than perhaps the sort of rougher edges of, of some of his earlier films. I mean, I was re-watching Wolf of Wall Street the other day, which is, you know, an appalling trial by fire in a sort of almost purgatorial sense. But it's very, I think it's very much, it's, it's all it's kind of very personal in a way. I think that those of us who know Scorsese's films and have looked at them over a long period of time can't really fail but to be continuously engaged. And what interests me is that the the newcomers seem to be just as happy with the current crop of films as I think a lot of us were about the original films. I mean, we we had, as you know, a large exhibition of Scorsese's stuff at Acme in Melbourne this year. And on the first day of the exhibition we had a public forum the punters were all asking us what we liked and the sort of films we liked of Scorsese's and then we turned it back on them whereas we all came up with the predictable you know taxi driver goodfellas raging bull age of innocence stuff all all of the audience and it included people our age and older was saying you know wolf of wall street 
Bring Out the Dead, and the Boston films. You know, it's that that kind of. So it, it, to me, there's still a, a very strong and engaged audience, and and those who who didn't cut their teeth on Taxi Driver, mm. um, I think, still seeing what I think is still there is a lot of very interesting and um, kind of productive work. It's almost the case that uh, the uh, a, a film that we don't necessarily consider the greatest of his work is still greater than most of the work that's out there. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I'm obviously biased, but, I mean, there are a few filmmakers that I don't care what they throw on celluloid, I'll, I'll front up. To me, the test is, if I go and see a film, you know, does it make me want to go and make some, do some work, i.e., mm-hmm. usually for me it's do some theatrical work or write a script or something, and, and I still get that with Scorsese almost every time. It's interesting that you noted bringing out the dead there. I didn't think that film got a lot of... Love. I I really enjoyed that film. I went and saw it in the cinema when it first came out. I, I'm far more. Uh, I guess I got into cinema when I had the chance to research all of his early films: Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Mean Streets, Goodfellas, all the great ones. And then I guess uh, I look at the current work and I have the same kind of feelings as somebody who's been watching Scorsese films for 40 years now. But uh, Bringing Out the Dead, I think, was an interesting one, especially because it was another collaboration with Paul Schrader. It's not my favourite film. Um, There are some things about it I really like and uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, I think. Mm. Um, It has some of the essence of that collaboration with Schrader. And I think it's really important that we emphasise that these films... We use the word Scorsese, and I think it's mm. legitimate to use that because he de- – well, he doesn't, but people who work with him do. But these films – I mean, I'm, I'm cued to this by thinking about Paul Schrader – are produced in every way by a, a team of people that, that work very closely together. Now, this is fundamental to all cinema. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but when you look into the, the working methods and the critical or the production histories of these films, I mean, the kind of Powell and Pressburger ideal of collaboration is, is very much alive. I mean, you can look at some of these films and think of them as, as Thelma Schoonmarker films, if you like, or mm. Paul Schrader films. Uh, and, and I don't think Scorsese, you know, even in his most jealous moments would argue that fact, you know, it's it, the collaborations, and this is where he particularly works very strongly with, with women at that level are, 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 you know, you can't ignore them. And I think if we if we start thinking about these films in this broader sense, we, we, we learn a lot more about them. I agree with you there. And he did have a lot of uh, collaborations over many, many years with women. Speaking of ACME or the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, and for those who don't know, they recently ran uh, quite a lengthy exhibition on Scorsese. Um, how did you get involved with the uh, with the exhibit for that one? I, you know, had a something of a relationship with Acme. They were um, very kind to ask me to sort of organise some panels at Melbourne University. We did some attended events. I, I, I presented a public lecture on the topic of Scorsese's women, which I've been sort of outlining a bit in this discussion. We had some associated masterclasses at the Melbourne University. It was kind of really interesting space to sort of see what's going on in film culture. I mean, frankly... If they'd asked me on the advisability of the Scorsese show, I would have said, well, you know, I love it. Kind of people who listen to this podcast would love it. But it would be interesting to see how it goes beyond that, you know, with the imperatives these days 
particularly in the winter months, that these things be seen as blockbusters, I would have perhaps said put it off a bit. But from the people I met in the context of doing panels and, and hanging out at the exhibition and some of the talks and, and discussions that were had, we were coming from all sorts of contexts, new to Scorsese, old to Scorsese. It was a very interesting um, and look, very encouraging context to be looking at the films in and thinking about their future. And you know, Scorsese, as you pointed out, is very interested in film curatorship and the history of and the future of cinema. And I think from what we saw within the acne space, the future of his cinema is, is, is reasonably secure. Was there any input from Scorsese or any of the, the team that he's worked with on that exhibit? He had, a, had an, a, an overview of the original exhibition which came through Europe. I think right. it started in Germany. I think it was put together by a German curators and, and I know that it also went to Paris. He wasn't able to, to come to the exhibition but he videoed it in um, at the beginning and, and made it an incredibly charming, kind of revealing video uh, message that was played at the opening of the exhibition back in, I think it was May. And I was a bit surprised by how he presented himself in that kind of context. And, and it was really interesting. Again, it was, it was. I mean, I don't know if anyone else got to see that who, who wasn't at the opening. I mean, it seems that half of Melbourne was at the opening. But um, it was an interesting way of doing it, given that uh, I, I gather he's not that keen on air travel. He's certainly never been to Australia before. I mean, a lot of it's his stuff. And a lot of it I'd actually seen in the archive back in the 90s when I was researching, doing my research on his work. A lot of his personal stuff was in there. I mean, most of it was his personal property, as far as I understand. And a lot of people found that very, very interesting and, and useful in sort of understanding. I think the idea of Scorsese is this kind of guy who makes gangster pictures has always been completely perverse. It helped people understand that his interests are far broader. Yeah, and it gives uh, it gives people a chance to access the person behind the movies a little bit more as well. That's, that's really fantastic. Cameron attended that, that exhibition while he was over in Melbourne, so he had that privilege. The rest of us are stuck in little old Adelaide. Um, you did an audio commentary for the Madman release of Martin Scorsese's short films. Can you tell us how that came about? Yeah, uh, again, I've had an ongoing relationship with Madman for years and that has always been a very good way to sort of get material out about the cinema. Um, and it's a wonderful kind of format. I mean, I, I, I shudder to listen to some of the things that, that, that I say in some of those commentaries. I've done ones on Cirque and on Visconti. It's an interesting format. It allows the brain, both the maker and the auditor, to look at things in a different way. I mean, I, 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 I don't think I could ever watch a, a commentary or listen to a commentary with a film with, unless I'd seen the film for the first time. And I think a lot of the commentaries can be a bit, well, random in what they bring. There are some very good ones. One commentary that I think is just outstanding is, is a Mike Lee commentary, which you may have heard that goes with his film from the late 90s called Topsy Turvy, in which he produces a curatorial discussion about how that film came together. And Scorsese himself has done some wonderful commentaries with his films. Mean Streets uh, uh, is one, I think, uh, I can recall some of the early ones he's done some commentaries of as well. That's a really interesting format and, and Mad Men have done a lot in that space to sort of really help with the business of film education. So I don't recommend my contributions uh, as, as, as being anything more than, you know, occasionally bemused opinions of a, of a, of a bit of a, a film geek. But I think we all find them when they're done well 
to be useful. What was the uh, Douglas Cirque commentary? I've done two for Mad Men on Cirque. One is for the Jane Wyman film Magnificent Obsession, which starred Jane Wyman and Rock Hudson. And the other is for the other film that that team made, which is um, All That Heaven Allows, which I think is probably one of the best films ever made. Yeah, All That Heaven Allows. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I've uh, got all of Douglas Cirque's movies on DVD, actually, so I'm going to have to go back and have a look at those audio commentaries. I sort of begged them to let me do those two because um, particularly All That Heaven Allows to me is it's just such a fascinating film. And, and Cirque, those who know Cape Fear very well will notice the reference to All That Heaven Allows in Cape Fear, just a little sequence of Jane Wyman in that film. I mean, again, it's another filmmaker that you know fascinates all of us, but certainly fascinates Scorsese. My last question was going to be about are you working on anything else? But I think we've covered a lot of what you're working on at the moment. As I say, I'm doing this sort of, I'm, you know, in a way I'm going back to the prehistory of Scorsese through Helen Pressburger and, as usual, working on things to do with Italian cinema. Bertolucci is another director that I, I think is still making very interesting films and um, particularly in the context of questions of migration in, into Europe now and, and, and Italy being the sort of, um, again, the soft underbelly of of Europe from another kind of context and an Italian film is doing a lot in this space to talk about the way that Italian and European society are dealing with the question of migration from North and East Africa. That's a kind of an interesting project that, that's taking up some of my time at the moment. I just want to recommend to all of our listeners who've enjoyed this interview with Mark that uh, they can get a hold of his book, particularly uh, might be of interest, Scorsese's Men, Melancholy in the Mob. Thank you so much, Mark, uh, for your time. and It's been fantastic talking to you. A real pleasure. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. There's that first freeze frame, which I think is probably the best representation of Henry Hill's thoughts on it. He's in complete shock and then it cuts to rags to riches. It's really brilliant to put it at the start of the movie Mm. because it is that important in the big scheme of things. That's what leads to the end of the movie. That's what leads to Henry Hill going into the witness protection Mm. program because they put out this, or you theorise that they put out this hit on him. So that action that um, Joe Pesci's character takes is the thing that actually makes everything else happen in the movie, in the last half of the movie. We see what happens to Joe Pesci. It doesn't actually really particularly affect Henry. What affects Henry is the fact that the cops are no, on I to think, him. I think it affects Jimmy and Jimmy's decision-making. It's interesting how Jimmy, um, for so long through the movie, seems to be the more stable compared mm. to Joe Pesci, seems to be the one that Henry can be closer to. But by the end of the movie, he's more psychopathic than... Well, than um, Tommy. It's in the research for Pelleggi's book, um, Henry Hill said that Tommy and Jimmy used to sit around and talk about their favourite hits. And that's how, uh, I mean, obviously this is all based on fact, but that's how much of a psychopath, how exceptionally violent both of them were. Spooky. The idea of Henry Hill as this outside insider, it's set up within the first 15 minutes when he's a young kid working at Paulie's shop and that guy comes through who's got like a bloody hand and he runs to get him towels and Paulie's like, that's a waste of my towels. It's a waste of seven aprons. I thought that they're both their reactions, Henry's need to help him and Paulie's, you know, thinking that absurd is perfectly contrasted. It, it perfectly illustrates why Henry is not really cut out for the gangster life. And yet survives for another... 
25 years. Yeah, and wanted it and dreamed of it ever since he was a young man. And I think the way that he's introduced as wanting it, like the first time we see him, it's his eye behind those blinds that go across and they kind of almost represent like a like bars, like it's almost like prison, like he's in this world of just mundane banality kind of thing. And then you see him looking over at, at things that are desirable. These guys are well-dressed. There's beautiful close-ups of, um, you know, guys' pinky rings, that kind of stuff. They have money. They're having a good time. It's all very understandably um, desirable. Absolutely. And, and you are hooked from that moment. You kind of go, okay, like he's going, who are these guys? What's this about? And you as an audience member are going, you know, who are these guys? What is this about? And it's fascinating that we want him to succeed, even if it is in this completely morally bankrupt community yeah we want him to succeed we're the ones we represent the people he's cheating to get there and i love that manipulation but that's i think that's because henry is is like most people lower lower income middle class you know you can see a lot of similarities between mm. him and just you know you always want for more some people go and get it and he's he went in tried to get it. His voiceover is full of self-justifications. It's pretty much the whole thing is self-justifying yeah. what he's doing. And that is, of course, if someone has to do that, immediately it's a mark of insecurity. It's the fact that they're not totally at peace with what they're doing, so they have to find all of these reasons and rationales. Like he says, the mafia is the working class man's revolt against a system determined to keep to keep working class guys poor. It is the only recourse for people like that, unless you want to work a nine to five job, put you know with just enough money to put food on the table this is your alternative the fact that he needs to keep justifying it indicates to me that he's not totally at peace with it the young henry is played by a guy named christopher Cerrone, who didn't act again for 20 something years funny how what just you know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> you mean, so? well, let me understand this, because I don't you know, maybe it's me, I'm a little fucked up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? Joe Pesci, he's obviously really, really great in this role. And scary. And uh, I think it's easy to watch such big actors as De Niro, Liotta, and Pesci and forget that all of this is based on true stuff. And a lot of it happened exactly the same way it happens in Goodfellas. Tommy DeVito is based on someone named Thomas DeSimone, who was a member of the Lucchese family. In Goodfellas, Pesci starts the movie by stabbing Billy Bats. It's his, obviously his worst mistake, killing a made man. But then we go back in time to his childhood and eventually we get to that iconic scene, which is funny how. And there's a real menace to him in this scene because he's with a friend who's making an offhand comment that we know it means nothing. It should actually be taken as a compliment, but Pesci takes it as an insult or possibly could have um, until we find out that he's joking. Uh, but it really kind of sets the tone that he's willing to take out anyone. And he does that in the scene with Spider. And Spider makes that comment, go fuck yourself. And he gets three bullets in his chest. And all of that stuff actually happened. There was a welcome home party for Billy Bats. And uh, he did ask DeSimone, the real guy, to shine his shoes. And the only difference was that, that he got killed two weeks later. But there was also that incident with Spider. And he said, uh, go screw yourself, Tommy. 
and he got shot in the chest three times after exactly the same thing happened with um, Jimmy Conway in the movie. He kind of egged him on about it, asked if he was going to take it. So uh, all of this stuff is based on real life, and so Joe Pesci's really just echoing the real person, but he does such a good job of it. It's one of the great comedic performances of psychopathy, like like yeah. Annie Wilkes, because it really is funny and terrifying all at once, the whole way through. I think he's definitely obviously got like short man syndrome as well. Uh, yeah. In terms of Joe Pesci's character, because I know the real guy is actually supposed to, it was huge. Yeah, and he, like he's constant, in the film he's constantly surrounded by people that are bigger than him and he just makes it his sort of mission not for that to be ever an issue. Even though he's the smallest in stature in the room often, yeah. he's always the biggest person in the room on yeah. the screen for you. He's always yeah. the one you're looking at, you're, yeah. you know, nervous about. And I don't think it's like a an accident that the first time we see him, he's stabbing someone to death with a knife that's nearly bigger than he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, in real life, Tommy's brother had been uh, someone who helped the police at one point and he was always trying to live that down and so anytime that someone would egg him on or, or you know say anything that he could take as an insult he would take it as an insult right well they certainly captured that in the yeah. film there's a part in the film where joe pesci's telling a joke and i'm not even sure if we hear the whole joke but we hear the end of the joke and he mm. says the guy was content to be a jerk and when he said that, I thought, oh, my God, that's why we like him. Because Joe Pesci just owns it. He is authentically himself. Mm. He's violent. He's a live wire. He's completely uh, unstable emotionally. Mm. But he is who he is. He doesn't pretend to be anything else. And I think introducing the mother and their relationship being warm is just a wonderful unconventional thing to do when you've got a character like that because suddenly this guy who's a maniac is sitting there and he's just quibbling with his mum while she's made him dinner. It's genuinely hilarious. And we should say here that Pesci's mum's played by um, Martin Scorsese's mum and uh, that she's really, really great in that scene. Catherine Scorsese and she was also in The Godfather Part 3 that year and also Martin Scorsese's dad's in it as well in Goodfellas. He plays the person who puts too many onions in the sauce while they're ah. in prison. Um, Billy Batts is played by Frank Vincent, who was in uh, two other movies with uh, De Niro and Pesci, Raging Bull and Casino. And uh, they were constantly killing one another. <laughs> so wait a minute. He killed Joe Pesci once. Joe Pesci killed him, killed him twice. Yeah. So he finally got his revenge at the end of Casino. Yeah. People have described the film as having hypnotic quality. And it's true. I found that when I've heard people, whenever I hear people talk about this, they go, oh, I sat down, I put the TV on and Goodfellas was on and suddenly I've watched the whole thing. Sure. And the film has that quality. It is so captivating. Why? Why do you think that is? Predominantly, I think it's pacing. I think the film moves at such a frenetic pace and it like, like things like cooking and all that kind of stuff are so interesting just in the way that they're shown um a lot of that comes back to the writing and stuff as well but i think restraint is actually used in this film more than you would think in the you know that famous iconic what's so funny scene that's just it's played in a medium shot yeah a still medium shot a still medium shot because you see those gradual reactions of everybody getting more and more uncomfortable as they're like a lot you know a lot of other filmmakers would cut into a close-up of henry hill's face as he's feeling more and more uncomfortable and getting worried about it and like there are moments where it's just played like it, the camera's steady and it's not doing anything there are those other moments like that famous copacabana scene which i think uh correct me if i'm wrong was uh, it only took eight takes 
yeah. to do. Um, and it's a, what, a three minute unbroken take, I think. Time is spent on the characters and how they interact, that the kinetic movement of the camera, those zooms, and there's this famous thing that um, Scorsese uses called the, like, the dolly zoom, where he's pushing around in a dolly and he zooms in as he does it. Um, I will sh- I will sh- we'll share a link in the show notes. There is a video essay of like all of the times it's used in a film um, of his, and it and he and he and he's continued to use it. Like in Wolf of Wall Street, he still still uses it, and it, and it's awesome. And it was totally improvised. Apparently, <clears throat> apparently, what they had planned to do, they couldn't use their main entrance. So Scorsese said, "Well, we'll just go yeah, through yeah. the back." And it's one of those interesting. Like there are so many long tape steady shot uh, steady cam shots in cinema that a lot of the time draw attention to themselves, and this. Although it's because it's so well like steeped in film history, you are aware of it now. But it's not particularly showy. Like, no. if that makes any kind of sense, like when you do a three-minute unbroken take, it would often draw way more attention to itself than it needs to. But it's all about the idea that Karen is just completely overwhelmed by what's going on. It's also it could be like a metaphor for sort of like mob lifestyle in general like you're walking through the underbelly yeah you've gone through the back door (laughs) i also think that it's just just impeccably well timed within the movie because it's at a critical juncture where they're meeting where this romance is blossoming at that moment you're ready to kind of just have a quiet moment with the film and the way that it you know the way that the camera glides it glides so sensually and beautifully it does feel like a seduction and that is what's happening yeah. Karen is being seduced by him and he has been seduced by this life the other thing is the fourth wall break that we talk about um, that happens in the courtroom scene this is such a bold move um, and s- it feels very strange the first time you see it but it did feel strange to me when I watched it but I loved it because at that point he's turned his back on the mob life and he's essentially becoming one of us now he's because so he, he literally turns to us you like the big short didn't you i did like the big short so i think that was a movie i didn't i, I didn't mind it but i, I, didn't, I like, didn't love it i didn't love it and that was a movie where it takes this idea of talking directly mm. to the camera and breaking out of the action and it for me completely failed and then you get this movie where it doesn't do it often i think it does breaks the fourth wall only once in that <laughs> final scene yeah, but it does it really well, sums up the movie. There's a lot of uh, tracking shots and moving camera throughout, uh, particularly the the fallout from the Lufthansa heist where um, Jimmy decides to whack everybody. So you get the uh, piano refrain of Layla going over the pink Cadillac and the two bodies in the car and then also the track through the meat truck to the gangster who's hanging on a meat hook. And so that adds some kind of magnetism to the movie because you can't look away or you'll miss something. And Scorsese uses it throughout the whole movie, particularly in the Copacabana scene. I put a note in here that I think it's kind of like an Annie Hall mob movie because there's so many different stylistic techniques that um, Scorsese uses in Goodfellas. Uh, And obviously Woody Allen uses a lot of these in Annie Hall as well. He uses, uh, you know, a long shot with the two walking towards the camera. That's kind of, you know, he's sitting in one spot while these two are right at the end of the frame. Uh, walking and getting closer so that's you know similar to not the same as what Scorsese does in this movie but he uses the same kind of visual techniques and then there's breaking the fourth wall in that movie as well but Woody Allen uses them more often but Scorsese kind of puts everything into this movie it feels like Mm. he's done all of these before and the most obvious shot for me is the overhead shot in Taxi Driver after the shootout of course where it goes up through the ceiling 
and that's such an amazing shot. And then there's all of the use of music, especially in uh, Mean Streets. He opens that movie with it. Um, and he's kind of just taken all of these bits that he's done from all of these movies before and tossed them all into Goodfellas. And you would think that it would be a mess, but yeah. it's not. There's one, there's one particular shot where he reuses the exact same shot when Ray Liotta just quickly has a look around the kitchen counter. Oh, yeah. And he goes like this, and he just goes like that, and like that. Uh, and like they just replay the... Sorry, sorry for those of you listening, <laughs> Cameron moved his head from right to left and then did the same thing again. He repeats that same shot twice because it's this amazing feeling of paranoia. That shot just expertly got it for me. Like, I just mm. remember just, just being like, that's so great. And for anyone who's sort of, you know, dabbled with chemical enhancements. Yeah. That it's, it, it, the sketchiness that you feel is really beautifully rendered by that sequence. Like, oh, it's I exactly would, right. I wouldn't know. Oh, yeah. Okay. Gangsters can be found in films as early as 1915. When Prohibition was enacted in the United States in 1920, it precipitated the need for a criminal underworld so that people could continue drinking. Mobsters would illegally peddle alcohol at speakeasies, and this was where gangsters became a part of regular people's everyday life. In the silent era, gangsters were portrayed as hard-boiled thugs who weren't particularly dimensional or fleshed out. After the Wall Street crash of 1929, heralded in the Great Depression, gangster films, which by then were talkies, darkened in tone to capture the social unrest that was in the air. Warner Brothers capitalised on this, hitting their peak in the early 30s with gritty, gritty classics like Little Caesar and The Public Enemy, both in 1931. And this is where we get the rise and fall construct of gangster movies as bleak morality plays, which is the same formula we see in Goodfellas. These films were big money spinners, and at one point studios were churning out 30 to 40 of them a year. But the strict enforcement of the production code in 1934 under Hayes brought the gangster genre to a standstill. Stars like Edward G. Robinson and James Cagney, who'd fashioned their careers around playing gangsters, had to now be detectives, who acted like gangsters but who operated within the letter of the law so that audiences weren't rooting for immoral characters. Gangsters returned in the 40s after Hollywood brought film noir to American audiences, but they were one-dimensional villains who existed purely as a thorn in the hero's side. After the Hayes censorship body was dismantled in 1968, Hollywood was once again at liberty to humanise their antagonists, which led to films like Bonnie and Clyde and The Godfather, and these films with the same narrative trajectory have been in vogue ever since, up to and beyond Goodfellas. To this day, they remain a staple of the modern cinema goer diet. Those movies in the 60s and the 70s, and the whole new Hollywood movement allowed us to, um, I guess The Godfather was really important because before that it was, uh, they called it an outraged outsider. And that was the perspective that the gangster movies came from. So The Godfather turned that around and said, okay, we're gonna tell this movie from the perspective of the people that are actually involved with it. And that new Hollywood movement as it gained steam it allowed filmmakers to tell uh, two violent or amoral stories in a kind of empathetic way. I, th I find it interesting that, that the code was, you know, a governing body that enforced these things about not rooting for immoral characters and all that kind of stuff. I feel like today's cinema, they've done it to themselves. Like, in terms of, like, yeah, we might root for, like, immoral characters and stuff, but everything feels so politically correct in films these days. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And they've done it to themselves. I mean, like, the studios have done it as well. Like, they've known what's worked and what hasn't worked and what's the flavour of the moment. Like, feminism at the moment, you have to have a strong female character or it's a, the worst character ever. Not anymore, Cameron. <laughs> With Trump. 
Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> you can see that in last year's Oscars with the whole um, movement about black actors not being nominated. Yeah, yeah. While, yeah, but you do need to be politically correct. While it's been a very, very long time since we've seen an Asian actor nominated for anything. All I know is I really miss seeing, seeing Jada Pinkett Smith at the Oscars last year. I yeah. know, yeah. It's, it's devastating yeah, she blow. <laughs> She's never going to win an Oscar, Jada Pinkett Smith. One other thing about the history of um, uh, gangsters being portrayed on screen is that uh, you said it started in 1915 for... Martin Scorsese, he's come out since um, the release of Goodfellas and said that he sees the whole American outlaw kind of genre as one. So not only gangsters, but outlaws in general. Like John Wayne stuff. Well, even dating back further than that. But yeah, absolutely. That's a good example of it. And the scene of Joe Pesci shooting directly at the camera is something that he took from a 1903 movie called The Great Train Robbery. So he's really gone back to all of that American outlaw um, stuff and says Goodfellas is just a continuation of that and the mafia in general is just a continuation of that which is really interesting that he's, he's obviously got that film history Scorsese with everything that he does yeah it informs every frame of how he yeah. makes movies mm. it's part of I think why people who love film love Scorsese it's also and the parallels between Scorsese and Tarantino are very similar in terms of the fact that they're both complete and other like cinemaphiles like they're both uh, no, in and out. Scorsese uses his influence and filters them through his own lens, whereas sometimes Tarantino will just blatantly copy them. Oh, God, I can't stand Tarantino, and I don't like most of his movies. Wow. He's so strident. We've lost half our audience. Do you know what's funny, though, is that the, the fact that Scorsese plays with linear narrative in this is ultimately something that led directly to what Quentin Tarantino does in Pulp Fiction mm. and in a lot of his movies. Mm. But he kind of made it, you know, there's this movie that's a crime movie that's really big, it's really well received, and that kind of opened the door for Tarantino to do something like that. And, uh, of course, I love... I feel like, and I like a lot of Tarantino's when I When I sit down for Tarantino, I feel like I'm going to see a three-hour film with a bunch of smart Alex. Oh, what witty rejoinder are you going to put there? That's how I feel about it. I feel like there's no, a real lack of naturalism. Sure, there's a lot of clever writing, but after a while, it starts to fucking gnaw at me. I feel the same thing with the Nora Ephron film. <laughs> um, Nora Ephron and... Um, Nicholas Pledger, I think they got married. Yeah. That's yeah. so weird that I and said that, because I, I had read that, but I yeah. that just came from my own and deep... Those movies were back-to-back in the Writers Guild of America, top 101 screenplays of all time, Goodfellas, and When Harry Met Sally. My God, I could not be more surprised if you told me that <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence married Danny DeVito. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. What was this? Oh, this is Benny. Benny, what happened? Well, we got straight out? No, we had a problem. I mean, uh, we tried to do everything we could. What do you mean? Well, you know what I mean. He's gone. And we couldn't do nothing about it. The violence shocked the hell out of me. And actually the violence in Casino, particularly one scene in Casino, really, really bothered me. We always come to a movie as a stranger and we've got kind of our our guard up a little bit about what we're going to see. And this movie lowers your guard so quickly and so thoroughly. You are so invested. You get totally immersed. Um, you know, and, and for most of the time, it's a comfort, it's a pleasure, it's funny, you're luxuriating in it, you're laughing a lot, and you're charmed. And it's only once Scorsese has got your defences so low that he suddenly punches you with this <clears throat> charge of violence. And it is, it's like, you. it's that kind of thing where <laughs> you're eating chips and they get caught in the back of your throat. 
that's how this violence struck me in this film. What scene are you referring to specifically or all of them? In Goodfellas, um, the first scene was the stabbing in the car. Oh, like right that. at the start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the most notable one after that was when he shot Spider. Mm. Oh, my goodness. I think I had to pause the film because I was just so... I <laughs> was not expecting it at all. I just needed to go eat some more chips. <laughs> I needed to have, like... I needed to get some fresh air. And I was thrilled by it. I was, gra- I was glad the movie did it. I was glad that Joe Pesci was so monstrous and that Scorsese didn't give a fuck how it was going to affect my relationship to Pesci but it totally took me by surprise I think also the swearing adds to this uh, idea of violence as well a lot of that was apparently ad-libbed mm. a lot of the swearing a lot of the use of fuck which is kind of every second word out of Joe Pesci's mouth I think with Billy Bats that violence leads to Robert De Niro's emotional reaction when he gets the call about Joe Pesci being whacked at the end of the movie and without that violence, which kind of tells you that, oh, this is a bad decision, Joe Pesci's probably going to have to pay for this at some point, and yet your, your hopes are up that he's going to get made for these um, for these two people to get in with this mafia family. And uh, that's all taken away from you, and that leads to Jimmy's phone call and his crying at the end of the movie, which is really one of the few times that any of them show kind of vulnerable emotion. Yeah, and it's a surprise, that reaction, because up until then, Jimmy's been very on top of it. And generally, the go-to emotion for these men is anger when he just cries helplessly like a child because he realised he's been got and there is no way to get back, Mm. you know? Um, It's really good. But I also have to say, after the spider killing, I think perhaps my favourite moment of black comedy in this film is the conversation that De Niro has with Pesci. (laughs) He's like... Why'd you do that? I was I was riling you up. What's the fucking matter with you? What's what, the fuck what, what is the fucking matter with you? What are you, stupid or what? Tom, I'm kidding with you. What the fuck are you doing? Are what you a fuck fucking sick maniac? I don't know if you're kidding. What do you mean you're kidding? You're breaking my I'm, fucking balls? I'm fucking kidding with you. You fucking shoot the guy? I mean, it was too horrifying for me to laugh, but I was really amused by that conversation. Apparently, they really did make him dig the grave and he dug it in the cellar of the building that they were in, I guess, and buried the body there, Spider's body. Every scene is underlined with a lot more tension because you know what people are capable of. Joe Pesci's character, the real-life counterpart, apparently Henry Hill implicated him in four additional murders that the FBI didn't know about, and that total brought it to 11 that he was implicated in. And uh, Henry Hill said that his first murder was they were walking down the street, he was 17 years old, and he said, hey, Henry, look at this. And he pulled out a gun and he shot someone who was just walking down the street who had no idea who they were. And then he turned to Henry and said, now that's cold-blooded. My God. One of the parts of the agreement between Henry Hill and the FBI was that if he was ever caught in a lie, then his uh, protection from the FBI would be rescinded straight away and he'd go to jail. And And Nicholas Pelleggi said that that was one of the reasons why writing the book was... He ha- was it was this incredible opportunity because he was legally bound to tell the truth mm. of his life to the author so he could write a really truthful biography. I think the real Henry Hill is a lot more unsavoury than the one depicted on film from what I've... Yeah. I would suspect so. <laughs> and much more of a dick. I, yeah. I've seen him be extremely arrogant in, right. in interviews. And I mean, you know, that's part of part and parcel of making a film you need to make a sympathetic lead character but then that brings up the moral question as if it's right to portray somebody like that i heard that henry hill was so obviously good fellas when it came out 
was you know such a big popular film and he was so proud of the fact that he was involved in it that he couldn't shut up about it and he'd mm. keep telling people oh goodfellas is based on me and then they would have to relocate him and relocate him until finally he got booted out of the program so he would have been such a big target at that point when he yeah. was kicked out which was 2002 three four yeah. somewhere around there um he would have been such a big target that they would have brought attention to themselves and at that point most of the people who were involved were in jail or dead yeah, and I think he died ultimately of natural causes in 2012. Mm. So he had a long life after 1980. I love the music in the film. Uh, one of my favourite transitions anywhere in cinema is the opening scene, Rags to Riches. Brilliant. I think the, just the way the, the on-screen action and then that music kicks in and where at the start of this movie, it always makes me really happy. And Scorsese's done this throughout his entire career. He did it with the opening of Mean Streets. He's done it, followed it all the way through to, for instance, there's the sex scene set to Comfortably Numb in The Departed. There's the opening of that movie, Gimme Shelter, by the Rolling Stones. There's just so many uses of music. Casino. I think Scorsese is one of the best directors in terms of using music. If you're listening to a piece of music and you're watching something completely bland, it'll make it feel... Emotional. They also think it's great that with the musical choices, he used um, songs that uh, were out at the time mm. the movie was set. I love the Copacabana scene with And Then He Kissed Me and they're walking through there. Yeah. It ties back to what you were saying before about that falling in love. This is the end result of all the bright lights and the comp trips. It's all been arranged just for us to get your mic. Damien, I saw Casino based on your advice that I do that as part of my research for this episode. I, I liked it. I gave it three and a half stars out of five. Um, I did have quite a few problems with it. I thought it was overlong. Uh, I thought the editing was mostly jarring. I, I, I found it a film that I was constantly being taken out of because I was aware of technique, which is, you know, Goodfellas has twice as much technique and I never once felt that way. All the editing tricks made the film more immersive. The opening scene of Casino where the guy, where Robert De Niro gets in his car and there's that cut and you see that it's a dummy. I couldn't believe something that amateurish was in a Scorsese film. I mean, I it was- I still can't. No, it was so obvious to me and, and I wasn't watching it on a big screen or anything. I was I was really taken aback by it. But not only that, the voiceovers in there, they constantly change volume throughout. There is some really peculiar editing. I wouldn't yeah. say most of it, but it's definitely enough in terms of watching for three hours. It's something that you notice. Also, I just didn't feel like anything in it felt as important as in Goodfellas. I felt like if Goodfellas was the baby, Casino was kind of the afterbirth. <laughs> With like a <laughs> bow put on the head to make it, oh, we'll just use these scraps and we'll say it's a baby. It's a really enjoyable retread of Goodfellas. Um, the only thing that really resonated for me was Sharon Stone as this doomed, self-annihilating alcoholic. I, I thought she was an interesting character, determined to just burn up her life as quickly as, and as completely as she could. And I thought that that was really interesting. Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro and their relationship and everything that was going on with the intrigue of the casino, eh, I didn't really much care. I didn't, I didn't pay as much attention to it as I did in Goodfellas. The film felt like it kind of operated quite a, a, quite a distance. Whereas in Goodfellas, I felt like the world was all around me. I really love the setting of the casino. That interests me a lot. And I think it was used really well. I, I think it was really enjoyable to watch all of the characters. 
Sharon Stone got an Oscar nomination for that role, which is very um Sharon Stone like to get an Oscar nomination. Um, but they had two films directed by Scorsese, written by Pileggi, starring De Niro and Pesci, and a third major star. So there's always that, then they're dealing with a lot of the same stuff. They're dealing with the mafia. Mm. So there's a lot of the same uh, things going on. Uh, it's it's essentially the same story told in a different setting. But I agree with you. Half an hour could be cut out. But there's some really great scenes in there. Not least, I think, is a game, that final scene set to the animal's House of the Rising Sun, where everybody gets whacked. And I think it's really well done in Casino. And the murder of Joey Pesci, I think, is the best part by Billy Bats. Goodfellas is based around the story of Henry Hill, who was a member of the Lucchese crime family from 1955 through 1980. In 1980, Hill turned FBI informant in order to get protection for himself, his wife and his children in the witness protection program after a hit was suspected to have been ordered on him. The Lucchese family was one of the Mafia's five families, a group of the five major families who comprised New York's Italian-American Mafia. They originated as Sicilian Mafia gangs based in New York and were constantly warring, particularly over which territory of the city belonged to them. The families were united after the 1931 murder of Giuseppe, Joe the Boss Masseria, the head of the Genovese family. Five months after the formation of the five families, the Commission was founded to govern the group. That council organised territories for each of the families and continues to govern Mafia activities in the US to this day. Those families were the Bonanno, Colombo, Gambino, Genovese and Lucchese families. The names of the families were first publicly acknowledged in 1963 during the McClellan hearings, wherein Senator Joe McClellan led an investigation into organised crime in the US. His main witness was Joseph Bellacci, previously a member of both the Lucchese and Genovese crime families. The Mafia went from strength to strength from the 1930s through the 1970s, however they did have several setbacks before Hill turned informant. Most notably, the Bonanno family was infiltrated by FBI agent Joe Pistone posing as Donnie Brasco, leading to family infighting for a decade and eventually resulting in the family being stripped of their seat on the commission. Interestingly, Bonanno family boss Joe Messino became the first head of one of the five families to turn FBI informant when he was facing the death penalty in 2004. Hill turning FBI informant in 1980 brought down many members of the Lucchese family, including boss Paul Vario, Paul Cicero in the movie, and James Burke, James Conway in the movie. In 1982, Burke was sentenced to 20 years in jail for his involvement in the 1978-79 Boston College basketball point-shaving scandal, wherein the Mafia bribed some of the college's players to ensure that the team would either lose matches or instead win by a certain margin, enabling the mob to place winning bets. Hill was also heavily involved in this scheme. In the early 1980s, the FBI planted a bug in the car of Lucchese family boss Anthony Corallo. They indicted the heads and other members of all five families after Corallo was caught implicating them all in illegal gambling, labor racketeering, drug trafficking, and murder. US attorney and subsequent New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani led the case against them under the RICO, or Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. Giuliani stated that his intention was to wipe out the five families. Two of the defendants died prior to the trial. All eight remaining defendants were found guilty, most of them handed 100-year sentences. One has since been released in 2014, two remain imprisoned, and five have died in prison or police custody. The final nail in the coffin for the Mafia as we knew it was when John Gotti, head of the Gambino family, was imprisoned for life in 1992. Gotti was famously known as Teflon Don when three trials in the 1980s wherein he was the defendant 
resulted in his acquittal. Later, it was discovered that jury tampering, misconduct and intimidation had been rife during these trials. Gotti was convicted of five murders when his underboss, Sammy the Bull Gravano, who had turned informant after Gotti had been caught on tape implicating Gravano in those same murders. Damien, tell us a bit about the um, release and reception of Goodfellas. I think it goes without saying that Goodfellas received a lot of critical acclaim when it was released. Uh, it's the first film in our series of podcasts which was nominated for Best Picture at that year's Academy Awards. It was nominated alongside Awakenings, Dances with Wolves, Ghost, and The Godfather Part 3. And of course, lost out to Dances with Wolves. There were three more losses to Dances with Wolves on the night Scorsese for Best Director and he wouldn't get his Best Director nom- uh, win until The Departed. Thelma Schoonmaker for Best Editing and Nicholas Pelleggian Scorsese for Best Adapted Screenplay. Lorraine Bracco was nominated for Best Supporting Actress but lost to Whoopi Goldberg for Ghost. And Pesci's acceptance speech is famous for being exceptionally short. He got up and said, it's my privilege, thank you. Contemporary reviews were very positive and the stature of the film has only grown since its release. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times said, Most films, even great ones, evaporate like mist once you've returned to the real world. Not this film. No finer film has ever been made about organised crime, not even The Godfather. Vincent Canby of the New York Times said, As Wise Guy is possibly the best, least romanticised and chilliest book in any library devoted to real-life mafia manners, Goodfellas is both the most politically serious and most evilly entertaining movie yet made about organised crime. As cinema, it ranks alongside Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone magazine said, The engulfing epic of mafia life that director Scorsese has fashioned from Pelleggi's 1985 bestseller is an American crime classic. Spanning 30 years, 30 years and running two and a half hours, the film bristles with the violent passion, howitzer wit and virtuoso style that made Scorsese's reputation with the gangster drama Mean Streets. Kathleen Carroll of the New York Daily News praised all of the film's performances, even one of the lesser roles saying the acting is first rate. Catherine Scorsese, the director's mother, provides much needed comic relief as DeVito's mother, who proves maternal love is blind by serving him dinner after a rub out. I could go on and on about reviews, so I will. Gene Siskel of the <laughs> Chicago Tribune said Scorsese is in top form with an energetic camera that darts, strolls and struts around rooms. In editing, he clips dialogue tightly and packs the soundtrack with pop music that unifies the movie's time span of nearly 30 years. Beyond that, what is so excellent about Scorsese is that his visual strategy underscores his moral sensibility. When Henry's wife Karen agrees to hide his gun, Scorsese photographs it from above as if it were a sacrament as he did with the guns in Taxi Driver, and then cuts to a religious marriage ritual that emphasises the importance of what Karen has done. Siskel, Ebert and Travers ranked the film as the best of the year. Jonathan Rosenbaum of the Chicago Reader said very simply, as pure storytelling and as exposition of a particular milieu and lifestyle, Goodfellas is the most masterful work Scorsese has ever done. The film may have lost the Academy Award for Best Picture as well as the equivalent at the Golden Globes, but it did win the Best Picture Award at the British Academy Awards, the New York Film Critics Circle, the Los Angeles Film Critics Circle, the Boston Society of Film Critics, the Chicago Chicago Film Critics Association and the National Society of Film Critics. The American Film Institute ranked the film the 92nd greatest ever. They also ranked it the second greatest gangster film ever. In 2002, Sight and Sound magazine ranked it the fourth best film of the last 25 years. That's 1977 to 2002. Empire magazine ranked it the sixth greatest film ever made. Total Film magazine ranked it first. 
David Chase noted that Goodfellas was the inspiration for his creation of the HBO drama The Sopranos, and at least two actors from the film got major roles on that series. Lorraine Bracco portrayed Tony Soprano's therapist, Dr. Melfi, and Michael Imperioli, the unfortunate bartender spider in Goodfellas, portrayed Tony's protege, Christopher Moltisanti. In fact, 27 actors from Goodfellas eventually went to work on screen in The Sopranos. So um, before we move on to the quiz, uh, we just want to let our listeners know that Scorsese's latest movie, Silence, the trailer has recently dropped for that film. It's going to star Adam Driver, Andrew Garfield, and Liam Neeson. It's set in the 17th century, and it's about two Jesuit priests who go on a mission to locate their mentor who has renounced Christ after being subjected to torture at the hands of the Japanese. Sort of sounds a little bit like an apocalypse now done Scorsese style, but set in the 17th century. Uh, It's got a limited release in December 2016 and goes wide in January. So I'm very excited for that. All right. So guys, are you ready to do the quiz? Yeah. All righty. Damien, let's start with you. All right. Who was the artist that painted the picture Tommy's mother holds up for them to have a look at while they're eating dinner? Uh, Banksy. (laughs) (laughs) Is that really your answer? I have no idea. So yeah, Uh, that's my answer. Uh, yeah, you get a chance now can that I he's... steal this from him? You can. I hope I'm right. Um, it's Pelleggi's mum. That's right. Well done, Cameron. Okay, that's Good one. Artist. So now it's your turn, Cameron. Oh. If you get this, then you're on two. If you don't, it will defer to Damien. So how much was Henry Hill paid by the studios for the rights to his story? And, you know, rough figure. Yeah, right. Um, I'm going to say... Half a million dollars. Spot on, two zero. Oh, oh my goodness, my God, Damien. What was what was the exact figure? I think I think the exact figure was four hundred and eighty thousand. Yes, but I've read a couple of different ones, so I'm I was going to accept half a million. Damien, Tom Cruise and Madonna were considered for the lead roles. True. That's right. Uh, and thank goodness that didn't happen. Jesus Christ. And I think um, Alec Baldwin was also considered for Henry Hill. And Sean Penn. Right. That would have been okay. Okay, so we're on 2-1. Cameron, true or false, Ray Liotta met Henry Hill before production began as part of his research. This feels like a trick question because it feels like something he definitely would have done. <laughs> but I'm going I'm to say false. You're right, false. He, um, God, I'm good today. Liotta had contact with Henry Hill after the film was released and Henry Hill said, thanks for making me not look like a bad guy. And Ray Liotta thought, did you see the movie? <laughs> uh, Damien, roughly how many times is the F-bomb dropped in Goodfellas? 120? 296 <laughs> times. I was roughly correct. Okay, so there's one more, and this one's for Cameron. Which actor turned down the role of Jimmy Conway due to a fear of typecasting and later regretted it? Pacino. That's right. Oh, my goodness. Cameron got that, so it was 4-1 in the end, was it? My my victory aside. (laughs) uh, Let's move on. Another... Um, project in the works for Scorsese is a film called The Irishman which will see him direct De Niro for the first time in a very long time Uh, Pacino is going to be in that as well interesting and and De Niro is trying to get Joe Pesci out of retirement to get him involved as well we've seen De Niro and Pacino in that great scene in Heat and everyone was like we want more then they did that film Righteous Kill and everyone was like maybe just pay it back a bit (laughs) um but, I mean, that's a very exciting cast. Chad Scorsese directed. Who directed Righteous Kill? Nobody? Uh, no one. Yeah. Of no. I thought it was yeah. nobody. Um, yeah, yeah. But there, there's uh, like there's all this cinema history behind Pacino and De Niro and especially mob films and mafia films. And you get them together in this movie, Heat, and it's directed by Michael Mann, who 
I guess uh, he gets big budgets, but he doesn't typically draw big audiences. And then he turns that around, and instead of this big shootout to open up that first scene together, it's, hey, you want to get a cup of coffee? And they sit down and they yeah. have a chat in a coffee shop. But for anybody who wasn't Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, I probably wouldn't have meant anything. But to have those two on screen for the first time, and that's their meeting. And, that, and it's kind of mutual respect in that movie that goes through and you, you think, okay, there's The Godfather and there's Goodfellas and Raging Bull and Taxi Driver behind these two actors. And they are considered the best actors of their generation and some of the best actors ever. I mean, it's hard not to see their catalogue recently and be like, eh. Like, yeah. You can still see glimmers even in Pacino's stuff. Like, um, he hasn't been in very good movies lately at all, but it's still there. Like, it's still very, um, very present. De Niro will make five shit films and then do one really good performance. Like, his supporting turn in Silver Linings Playbook was excellent and I think that's his last Academy Award nomination today. But yeah, really excited for The Irishman if it actually gets off the ground. Apparently it's been a passion project for a very long time. Mm. Um, it'd be good to see them in a good film again. Apparently Ray Liotta, who he campaigned for this role because they weren't mm. too happy with him. I think he went to producer, is it Erwin Winkler? At a, at a lunch at a restaurant, went up to him and sort of um, pitched himself for the role and got it. He actually turned down working with Tim Burton in the original Batman. He was set to play Harvey Dent, which is really a nothing role in that first movie. Another thing I found interesting when I was doing research for the quiz was the DOP, Michael Ballhouse. He had to leave production on Goodfellas early, just shy of it, because he'd committed to make another movie with Mike Nichols' Postcards from the Edge. Mm. So he went off and shot that. So did he finish Goodfellas? Just shy of it. So he wasn't there for a few days. And I guess they had to muddle through without him. In terms of Scorsese's filmography, how does Goodfellas rate for you guys? It's in the top three. Um, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas. I know Raging Bull is a fantastic film, but I'm always at a distance from that film. I don't, I don't have any form of connection with that. I'd say Taxi Driver is the better film. Again, Goodfellas is something I would watch far more often. All right, guys, out of five? Five. Five. And five for me too. So there you are, boys and girls. Five stars for Goodfellas. Go and rewatch it. And that pretty much wraps up this episode of Celluloid Junkies. I'd like to thank our special guest, Dr. Mark Nichols, for his time and expertise. We hope you'll join us again next month as we buckle up for William Friedkin's 1971 action thriller classic, The French Connection. Until then, I'll leave you with these sage words. Never write out your friends and don't take shit from nobody. I was exploring how I could still be feeling endeared to people like that because I grew up around them. And yet I know what they do, you know? It's, it's that, that dichotomy. I can't, I can't bring the two together. You know, granted, in the film, at a certain point, the minute they kill Billy Bats, Frank Vincent, it's downhill. I think I brought more of almost like a documentary attitude towards it. I wanted to show you uh, the star of the movie is a way of life, not a character. Somebody uh, commented that uh, it's like Scarface without Scarface, but that's what it is. Yeah, we don't need Scarface in the film. You know, it's the way of life. If you grow up around that, um, what I wanted to show you was um, the danger of the exuberance of that kind of life at first, you see. The danger of the exuberance, the ex danger of the excitement. When you're young, you think you're, you think you're gonna live forever and you, you, know, you, you think you're tough and you could take a few more shots in the head than somebody else could. And so you, you think you're tougher than the other person. Well, eventually, if you don't use your brain, you know, you're not gonna wind up anywhere. That's what happens with the Joe Pesci character. And I think the, the danger of the excitement of that lifestyle is what I grew up around and I saw a lot of people uh, disappear.